2: School of Humans It was easier to deal with poverty and death in India than the lack of spirituality in America. This is a quote from Albanian Indian, Roman Catholic nun and missionary, Mother Teresa, who spent most of her life in India. In this quote, she points out why many Americans, including myself, are drawn to India. Its deep religious roots and sacred rites and rituals give India a spiritual relevance that's lacking in the States, which as an American is the only Western experience I can speak to firsthand. Like I've said before, for spiritual seekers, India is what K2 is for extreme mountaineers. It's a place people go when they want more, spiritually. Whether that's pushing some sort of edge or finding and connecting to a deeper part of themselves, it's the extreme. The disappearances covered in this podcast could have happened anywhere. People going missing is not an Eastern phenomenon. In America, in 2020 alone, 543,018 people went missing— according to the FBI's National Crime Information Center. So for me, it's not about sensationalizing India as a place where people vanish, but about examining stories allegedly tied to spiritual quests so that these personal stories shed light on the thin line between healing and harm and spirituality, and more closely examine the cost of enlightenment. These are all stories I chose to live with for the past year because of my own connection and curiosity around this thin line. So I didn't choose India as a setting because I want to vilify it. I chose it because as a spiritual seeker, I revere it. In America, we don't possess India's spiritual depth and history, but there are parallels between the $4.5 trillion New Age wellness spiritual industry in the States and the influence gurus in their empires hold in India, which, as we've reported, can be used to empower followers or abuse them, which in some cases also happens in the unregulated New Age wellness spiritual industry in the West. Matthew Remsky, a journalist whose podcast Conspirituality, a weekly study on converging conspiracy theories with wellness utopianism, shared his thoughts on this parallel with me. FYI, Matthew uses the term charismatic leader, which basically means someone or something, like an organization, that attracts attention due to their charisma. Charisma being a quality which sets an individual apart from the ordinary and endows them with supernatural, superhuman, or at least exceptional powers or qualities.
3: In India, we have ashram infrastructure and the capacity for charismatic leaders to appeal to mainstream versions of, you know, existing institutional religions. So that can be very effective there. But if we, you know, take the same model or the same lens and look at organizations in North America, you know, somebody like Tony Robbins,
2: Tony Robbins is a motivational speaker and self-help guru, though he has a documentary titled, I Am Not Your Guru. As of 2019, Robbins had 7.9 million followers across his five main platforms, and he allegedly makes $9 million a year from those platforms and his seminars.
3: Tony Robbins operates a very charismatic organization, and he's built an infrastructure to support it based upon, you know, 20 or 30 years on the workshop circuit. Uh, There is an entire economic structure of content production that backs up the self-improvement, personal development, and new age spheres that, in a way, is kind of its own religious architecture. And its sacred sites are the Esalen Institute and the Omega Institute, and its publishing companies are, you know, Gaia TV or
2: Esalen Institute and Omega Institute are nonprofit educational retreat centers focused on spirituality, consciousness, alternative medicine, and more. Gaia TV and Hay House publish content on these subjects.
3: Now, it's a lot less old than the religious infrastructure that might be supporting charismatic groups in India, but it's no less powerful.
2: The guru empires of the East and the New Age wellness spiritual industry of the West are different in many ways, but they're similar in one significant way, and that's in the power they both wield. But the East still has an infinite draw for spiritual seekers in the West, which is something Ankita, Gabby, and I have become even more aware of after launching Astray. We're recording this podcast in real time, so as you listen, we read the reviews, and it's had the effect I'd hoped it would. It's igniting conversation and has opened the door for people to reach out to me with more personal stories that help us further examine the cost of enlightenment. So a week ago, I got an email from someone who'd heard the podcast. In the email, they shared a story that sounded like the others we've reported on. So I knew I had to share it. But what I didn't know is how many questions Charlie Marinelli's story would ultimately answer. It's July 2019, and Charlie, an American born and raised in California, is ready for his solo trip to India. Hell, he was born ready. He believes India is the next step for him as a seeker and explorer, hungry for more, answers, connection, experiences. After backpacking through Thailand alone at 18, India feels like the optimal solo adventure for Charlie at 24, especially after hearing about his dad's epic travels there. But his dad, also named Charlie, warned him. He has to keep his head on straight while he's in India. It's a different culture. The key, according to his dad, is to navigate India like bamboo. Stay flexible and go with the flow. His dad says the real beauty of India is that it teaches you about patience and humanity. Charlie knows a little something about humanity. He was in St. Croix at a plush job, living the life in the tropics with his fiancée, Michelle, when he got a call from his mom saying his grandfather had a stroke and was in hospice. Charlie, who was extremely close to his grandfather, was devastated. He flew home to be with him. And when he died, it shook Charlie. But it also awakened something in him. He wanted out of his lucrative job, hitting the token life goals we're all told we should aspire to in the West. So he put in his two weeks, got a visa for India, and bought a one-way ticket to Delhi. Charlie left St. Croix with Michelle and moved back to California to prepare for his trip. He's obviously going to India for the experience, but he also believes the spiritual pulse of India will force him inward— to more deeply understand who he is, why he's here, and why it all matters. The past four years, he's used psychedelics to help with this. Charlie doesn't abuse these drugs. He sees them as a gateway to deeper self-reflection. And he's considering going back to school to learn how to use psychedelics as a tool to heal and assist others. And India will give him space and time from friends and family to think about all of this on his own. Charlie has no itinerary for his trip to India. The only thing he's booked is a hostel in Delhi, so he has somewhere to sleep off his jet lag. And though his mom, Nanette, is weary about him traveling alone with no plan, he did it before in Thailand, so she trusts this trip will pan out the same way. On July 9th, 2019, Charlie lands in Delhi. And just as his dad said, as soon as the airport's glass doors slide open, it's chaos pungent smells, frenzied foot traffic, relentless car horns, taxi drivers yelling over each other at him. He navigates his way back to his hostel, but after a night in Delhi, decides to head to Bagsu, which is supposed to be paradise in the Himalayas. A 12-hour drive from Delhi, on roads navigating steep cliffs, Bagsu is near Dharmshala, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama has sought refuge for six decades. Unlike Delhi, Bagsu is quaint, with cobblestone streets, meandering cows, vendors selling chai, cafes and marketplaces with mountain views, and because it's so far north, a mix of Tibetan and Indian residents. Bagsu is where Charlie finds community in India, and the serenity and time to meditate, hike, and explore sacred temples dotting the Himalayas. He also finds something in Bagsu he didn't foresee. A teacher, someone to take him to that next spiritual level, the edge, to find a deeper sense of self. But what Charlie didn't expect was that he would completely lose himself.
4: If there was anything that could make me absolutely break in life, it was
2: that I was on the verge of collapsing. It was terrifying.
5: Oof, it was, a, it was a challenging time.
2: These are Charlie's parents, Nanette and Charlie. I'll call Charlie's dad, Charlie Sr., for clarity's sake. They're not married anymore. They got divorced when Charlie was young. Charlie Sr. lives in Bali, and Nanette is in California.
5: He heard me talk about India, and I think that it was the, the next step for him to go challenge himself. I don't know if you can learn it, if you don't put yourself in those positions that are going to test your edges. India is a beautiful place to learn this. You're not going to learn that in suburbia America.
4: I was less nervous this time because he had done the Thailand trip. He could do it, he knew what he was doing. I still, you know, took photos of all of his credit cards front and back, his passport, his ID, and, you know, wanted him to stay in contact with me. I would have preferred that he went with somebody else, but. I did tell him, because he does smoke marijuana, and I knew that. And I said, you're going to India. There's no tolerance there. Do not, do not, do not do drugs in that country. You can go to prison. It is not like America. And that's how I left him at the airport. I gave him a huge hug, and I, I kind of broke down and said, whatever you do, do not mess around in that country. Understand their laws and take it seriously.
2: So, as you can tell, Nanette and Charlie Sr. had very different expectations for Charlie's solo trip and what he should be prepared for in India. Charlie Sr., who had traveled to India, wanted his son to have a memorable experience like he did and find that edge he was looking for. Nanette just wanted her son to play it safe in a country halfway around the world that doesn't play by the same rules as the state's. But less than two months later, these two were jolted in sync when they realized, in separate houses and on separate FaceTime calls with Charlie, that something wasn't right with their son.
4: I was immediately just shocked at what I saw.
5: It wasn't him. It was, it was out of character. As I said, he's pushed the edges in other ways in the past before and never went to this edge.
2: Charlie had hit the edge of something, but it was an edge Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com Most of Charlie's time in Bagsu was spent meditating, exploring the Himalayas, smoking chillum, and connecting and learning from others who spoke a similar spiritual language to him. But there was a turning point in Charlie's trip where things got scary for his parents, Nanette and Charlie Sr., and it was unclear if their son was feeling the same way.
4: When I first realized that Charlie was in trouble, he fell out of contact with me for about four or five days and he used to talk to me every day, always, always. No matter where he was, he'd call me once a day, just checking in, hello. Um, But I didn't talk to him for about four or five days and that worried me a little bit. So I started sending him texts, just send me a quick text, are you okay, is everything good? He didn't reply for a little while. Then he finally did reply and he said, I'm fine, I just wanna let you know that I'm not gonna have my cell phone on me for a while and i said well why not and he said um because i found my teacher and baba g will be the person that will contact you once in a while to let me know how i am and i said baba g is gonna contact me i said and why can't you have your phone he said mom because i'm going through this process and i can't talk to any family or friends i can't have any contact with them and i said well that doesn't sound right? Anybody who wants to keep contact, uh, keep you away from your family and friends is up to no good because they don't want you to have anybody referencing and saying, is that right? Or why are you doing that? So I was, I was pretty worried about that. And, um, I said, well, how long is this going to be? And he said, uh, maybe a couple of years. I said, are you kidding me? I'm not going to have contact with you for a couple of years. I said, what about Michelle? Oh, she's coming with me.
2: Nanette reached out to Charlie's fiancée, Michelle, who was in Hawaii at the time, and she said she had no plans of going to India. But she'd also noticed that something was off with Charlie. And who was this Baba G? Charlie Sr. had spent time with Babas in India, who, as you know, are also called Sadhus. He had met the ones that were the real deal, who transcend the material world with the wisdom and spiritual insights they teach followers. But he'd also run into what he calls bogey yogis or fake babas.
5: The challenge is is if you're a little bit vulnerable, you can end up with these babas. And I think that my son, he's a good person and he tends to be trusting and that can get people in trouble.
2: Charlie Sr. knew his son was in trouble when he got a call from Michelle saying that something was definitely wrong with Charlie. And he had to get a hold of him now.
5: I got him on a on a video call, and I went, uh oh, this isn't Charlie. Uh, something's going on. He had something wrapped around his head, and he had no shirt on, and he was in a cafe. And Dad, look at my new house. I just this is where I live. And look at the paintings on the wall, and look at the whatever. And I went, uh oh.
2: Nanette also had a bizarre FaceTime call with Charlie, but on her call, Charlie wasn't alone there was someone else listening in.
4: The next time I talked to him, he FaceTimed me, and I was immediately just shocked at what I saw. He was in the dark, he had huge earrings on, a shawl wrapped around him, and he just looked gaunt. He looked hollow in his eyes. He looked uh, so thin, he looked like he was starving. He just looked so unhealthy. And he said, mom, I want you to charter a plane and get to Hawaii. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I knew him and his fiance wanted to get married in Hawaii. I said, did you guys make a date? Are you getting married? And he goes, no, you'll see, you'll see. Charter a plane and bring the whole family. I said, charter a plane. He goes, mom, quit your job. You don't have to work anymore. And I said, Charlie, you're losing me. I don't even know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. Did you win the lottery or something? What's going on? He goes, well, it's something like that. And he kept looking up in the corner someplace at somebody. His eyes kept averting, and he would make a little nod. And I said, who are you looking at? And he goes, nobody, nobody, it's nothing. And he just keep looking up like somebody was directing him.
2: In a text exchange with Charlie that followed the initial call they had about the Baba, Nanette asked what Charlie was studying with him. Charlie responded, I don't know, spiritual things. This response sounds eerily similar to the other stories we've shared of men who had cryptic sign-offs before disappearing. But at this point, Nanette, who was still on FaceTime with Charlie, had eyes on her son.
4: And I said, Charlie, why are you wearing this shawl all around you? You look strange to me. And he said, because it's getting cold in the Himalayas, mom, it's cold. And I said, okay, and with the earrings? He goes, do you like that? I did it myself. I said, I don't know. That's unusual. It doesn't look like you. So he said, so here's what I want to do is I'm going to send you some money. I'm going to send it to Andrew's bank. Andrew's his brother, my my other son. And I want you to charter a plan and just get over to Hawaii. And I said, Charlie, you're not making any sense to me. Just hold on just a moment. So I went in my daughter's room. I wanted to verify. Am I hearing this correctly? What he's saying to me that he's this off? And so, um she verified same thing, And then my son Andrew, came in the room and he looked at him. and he said, "Mom, there's something wrong. He's on drugs." So then, of course, my alert goes into, you know, high gear as a mom. You know, hey, who is he looking at? He's in the dark. He's on drugs someplace. Well, my other kids were talking to him on FaceTime. I called his fiance really quick and I said, have you talked to Charlie lately? And she said, yeah, I talked to him last night. And I said, how did he sound to you? And she said, he told me that he was scared and he thought somebody was drugging him and he didn't know how to get out of there. So I, I went back and I wanted to get on the phone with him. And he said, and he was walking someplace in the dark. He had no shoes on. I said, Charlie, where are you going? I said, I'm gonna go get on a bus and I'm gonna get out of here. And I said, what bus? He goes, mom, don't worry about it. I'm gonna get on a bus and my phone's about to die. And his phone died. And then I was unable to get a hold of him.
2: Nanette knew she had to act fast. So
4: I called the embassy right away. And I said, you know, this is the situation and explained exactly what happened and they said, Get on a plane as fast as you can and get to India.
0: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for 1/8 ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time visit picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings that's pacas
1: hi i'm cindy crawford and i'm the founder of meaningful beauty
7: Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. When Annette
2: and Charlie Sr. realized something was off with their son, and he might be in immediate danger, they went into rescue mode.
5: I immediately found, I stalked his friends on Facebook or I think I found someone on Instagram who I had seen in a picture or one of his friends he mentioned or something. And I got this guy and I went, you got to go back up to Bagsu. You got to go back up there and you got to go get Charlie. He's in a bad state.
2: This friend in the picture was Rennick, who Charlie had met in Delhi when he first landed in India.
5: He's like, oh, well, you know, I don't know if I can get up there and I don't have money in this and that. So I think I Western Unioned him some money and had him go back up there.
2: Having Renick track down Charlie and Bagsu was the first step. The next step was for Nanette and Charlie Sr. to get to India and fast.
4: Uh, We both applied for visas and we got them really quick. We got them the next morning. I don't know if, you know, somebody at the embassy made a phone call. I don't know, but we got really lucky we got them fast The embassy got in contact with the local police and they gave all of Charlie's information and she said they're gonna be looking for him. And that's it, we packed a bag and got on a plane.
2: While Nanette and Charlie Sr. were on their 17-hour flight to India, Renek was navigating the winding 12-hour route from Delhi to Bagsu.
4: By the time we were in our layover in Istanbul, I got a phone call from Rennick and also from the embassy that the police had found him, but they let him go. They said, he's fine. And I said, he's he's not fine. They don't know him. So what, however he was talking, they might've interpreted as he's okay, but I'm telling you that he's not okay. He's in some sort of psychotic state. So she called the police back and, and you know, put them back on the alert to go find him again. And uh, Rennick got up there to the cafes, and he found Charlie. The police asked Rennick to come to the police station and sign off um, a piece of paper that says, I've got Charlie. I'm in charge of him. Rennick went and did that, but by the time he uh, got back up to the cafe, Charlie
2: was gone. Charlie performed a vanishing act, and it wasn't the last time.
5: He was following him and all of a sudden Charlie would disappear. He would be on the phone with me. I'm like, you, you got eyes on him? Are you? And all of a sudden he's like, you're not going to believe this. He just disappeared. I don't know where he went.
2: So after a couple of incidents where Rennick would find Charlie and Charlie would suddenly just disappear, there came a point where Rennick couldn't find Charlie at all.
4: So Charlie went missing. Rennick uh, started a search party and got everybody to go looking for him. Finally, some tourists found him and they said he looked really confused. So I said, runnick get him to a
5: hospital. Take him to a hospital. Just do what you gotta do to get him to a hospital.
4: Whatever you have to do, I'll make it up to you. Just please get him to a hospital.
2: But Charlie didn't wanna go anywhere. He was acting erratic and was unstable. Eventually, Rennick was able to force Charlie into a car with the help of Indian police that were sent by the U.S. Embassy.
4: He sent me a picture of them in the car with Charlie in the middle, and they had two guys on the side because I guess apparently he tried to escape out of the car again, so they blocked him in the car. First hospital they got to, I think they were full, they couldn't take him. They went to a second hospital. They wouldn't take anybody with any type of psychiatric events happening. So they got to a, a hospital in Dharamshala. Charlie was refusing to go in at that point. He wouldn't go into the hospital. So Rennick FaceTimed me and he said, can you talk to him? He looked nothing like himself. He was so thin. He looked like he was starving. He had two holes in his hands and he held them up to me. And he said, do you know what that means? I said, no, Charlie, what happened to you? He said, mom, I don't need water or medicine or food. Do you know what this means? And he kept pointing to the palms of his hands.
2: There were holes in both the palms of Charlie's hands. Nanette couldn't tell from FaceTime if these were actual puncture wounds or if he had burnt something into his hand or if it was just ash. But she did know what Charlie meant by it. He thought he was the Messiah, Jesus, the Chosen One, that didn't need anything in the world to survive because he wasn't of this world. He believed he had transcended. Journalist Jessica Ravitz spoke about Jerusalem syndrome in episode one, which is defined as a psychosis where people become so overwhelmed by the holy city of Jerusalem that they believe they're the Messiah. I had put this in the same category as India syndrome, something to debunk. But Charlie's behavior is proof that people can arrive at a state where they believe they're the Messiah. I asked his parents if he had exhibited this sort of behavior before.
5: He never had those tendencies. He had been on other journeys before. He had pushed the envelope in the name of self-discovery and really taking it on a journey. That never happened to him before. So my only conclusion was somebody drugged him. I think somebody kept him on something for a long period of time. Good intentions or bad intentions, I have no idea, but it, it went astray. That's what happened.
2: When Charlie Sr. references Charlie's other journeys, he means psychedelic journeys. That at the longest would last 12 hours tops. Not two weeks like the psychotic state his son was in now. Standing with Rennick outside a hospital in Dharamshala, refusing to go in.
4: So he said, no, mom, I'm fine. I'm not going into any hospital. And I, I, he saw me cry. And then the phone went dead. And then Rennick called me back and he said, ma'am, I have to let him go. He just hit me in the face. And Charlie's not violent. I've never seen Charlie hit anybody in his life. Never. And I said, Rennick, why did he hit you? And he said, because he said I made you cry. So I said, Rennick. You have to get him into the hospital. He said, ma'am, I can't do it. People are looking at me. You can't do this. He's white. We're Indian. We're surrounded. There's people around. There's police officers here. I said, ask them to put some handcuffs on him, even if it's against his will, and get him into a hospital, please. And he said, it doesn't work like that here. You can't do that. If somebody doesn't want to go to a hospital in India, you can't force them to go to a hospital. And I said, Renick, if you let him go, I'm never going to see him again.
2: Hey, Charlie. How's Can you hear me?
6: Can
5: you hear me?
2: Yeah, I can, can hear, hear you.
5: move into this other room. Well, my service isn't the best in my apartment.
2: How's it going? I'm okay. I'm just, like, nearing... Yeah. Basically- this mm-hmm. is Charlie Marinelli. Nanette and Charlie Sr. did see him again. Though at times it took force, antipsychotics, and a lot of patience to get him home, they know they're the lucky ones. They found their son and are eternally grateful to the generous community of doctors at East-West Medical Center in New Delhi for helping Charlie get to a state where he could function enough to get onto a plane back to the States. Charlie is the one who wrote me that email, saying he'd heard the podcast, and the stories we covered were so similar to his own that at one point he thought I was talking about him.
5: And I went and listened to it, and I, it was even more weird. Because up until now, is. Like, I'm working with an alternative therapist, like psychedelic therapy and stuff like that. And, I mean, they never brought up the term uh, India Syndrome. They've never brought anything around that up. So, like, hearing that parallel story...
2: He's speaking about Ryan Chambers' story that we shared in Episodes 1 and 2. Charlie related to Ryan's story because there are some parallels with his own. But...
3: However,
5: I, I came back... It was really, really intense.
2: What I've realized from doing this podcast and, and speaking to experts, specifically Dr. Archette, who was in episode two, is that the labeling of it as India syndrome is wrong. But the psychosis is real. What happens to people?
5: Oh yeah. It's very, very
2: real. <laughs> so So we'll hear about how real it is on the next episode of Astray. Astray is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio. Today's episode of Astray, Charlie Marinelli, was produced, written, and narrated by me, Caroline Slaughter. Ankita Anand is my co-producer, and Gabby Watts is our supervising producer. Astray was sound produced by Toon Welders with score and sound design by Jason Shannon and mixed by Harper Harris. Executive producers are Brian Lavin, Elsie Crowley, and Brandon Barr. Thanks for listening.
7: From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.